Well, good morning. I am so glad to see you this morning. Um, I invite you to take your Bible. We're going to go to Luke. We're, gonna, we're staying in Luke this morning, in Luke chapter 9. But I want us to look at a familiar verse of Scripture first in John chapter 1 this morning. In John chapter 1, it's a verse that you hear at Christmas time. It's a verse that, that I have used at Christmas time to, to preach Christmas messages. But I think it's an important verse for us to, to understand where we're at this morning in terms of we're going to talk about the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. And in John chapter 1, verse 14, John records for us this, this uh, incredible event of Christ being born. And he puts it in an interesting way for us to, for us to consider. And he says, the word became flesh. Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And what John is not doing here is just spouting hyperbole when he says we have seen his glory. When he says we have seen his glory, he is referring to the event that we're going to talk about today, the transfiguration. John was there, and he saw Jesus in an amazing way. And as we come to this passage, and I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 9. As we come to this passage in Luke chapter 9, it's really easy to come to this passage. And, and I found myself even doing this early in the week as I was considering and studying and, and reading commentaries. It's really easy to come to this passage and just say, wow, how cool that must have been to have been there. And man, I wish I was there and miss something really important and miss something really important and I don't want us to miss that important thing this morning but for for just a second I want you to consider the perspective of the first readers of John's gospel whenever he says we have seen his glory and I want you to consider what that meant to them and so to do that, you're going to have to think a little Jewish with me this morning. Can you think like a Jew for a second? Once heard a preacher talking about it. He says, one of our problems when it comes to our Bibles is, is that we don't think like the sons of Shem. Because <laughs> we're not the sons of Shem. And, and, and so can you think like a Shemite with me for a little bit this morning? Let me help you to think like a Shemite for a second. If, if we were to consider, and going back into scriptures, what it meant to see God's glory we would have to go all the way back to the book of Exodus. And so I had you turn to Luke 9 just because I want you to mark it, and I want you to go with me now into your Old Testament. I want you to go deep into the Old Testament with me to Exodus chapter 13. And in Exodus chapter 13, we have this remarkable account for us. We have this remarkable account for us, and, and, and I want you to consider, thinking like a Jew this morning, what this meant to the people. So in Exodus chapter 13, verse 17, it records for us that, that, that Pharaoh let the people go and God didn't lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. It would have been the, the most direct way to go. Instead, God led them on a very indirect path. And, and what he said was, if you look at verse 17, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. In other words, if we just go the most direct route, when we, get in, when we meet hard times in adversity, the people are going to turn back. That's instructive to us. How many of you ever feel like turning back when things get tough? Yeah. And so, as, as now they're moving out, 
we find as we scan down to verse 21 what God does. And here's what it says. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from them before the people. And, and we read that and we start to think about it from Sunday school terms. Remember in Sunday school when you had flannel graph up on the board or your teacher held up pictures and you see, you see all these little nice little Israelites and there's this little cute little cloud in front of them or, or maybe you see them at night and there's this little pillar of fire and, and we miss what's happening here. This is God's presence right here with his people. This is God in a cloud coming right here with his people, actually right in front of them. And he so oriented them that every night when they stopped and they camped, God went to the center of the camp in that pillar. And they were all to arrange their tents in such a way that their tent doors opened that the first thing they saw when they looked out was, there's the presence of God. There he is. And we think that that, and when we read that, I used to be like of this mind that at what point did it go from being like a cloud to fire, you know? Like, like on your GPS, you know, you're ever driving whenever the sun sets and you're following a GPS and it goes from the white background to the dark background? You ever pay attention to that? It's like, is that how it happened with God, you know? That you know, all of a sudden, at a certain time, it just clicks over? I don't know, but the pillar of fire really is just that same cloud, but it's God's glory that radiates out of it, and it looks like fire at night. I don't think that pillar ever changed. That pillar during the day was just as glorious, but you know how at night, whenever you turn the lights out, things seem even brighter and more glorious? That's exactly what's happening here with this pillar. And so in Exodus 13, we have God's presence in this pillar-shaped cloud that resembled the fiery brightness of the sun at night. And now if you move forward a little bit to Exodus chapter 33, I want you to see how God himself even changed, not really changed, but how he dealt with Moses. And, and so in Exodus 13, we have God's glory personified, if you will. It's, 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 it's brought there for us to see and interact with. And by the time we get to Exodus 33, God's been meeting with his people and meeting with Moses on top of Mount Sinai. And, and, and we come to verse 9, and, and here Moses meets God in a tent. This tent of meeting is outside of the camp. And Moses goes out, and he meets with God in this tent of meeting, what he calls it. And in verse 9, when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. Now, think like a Jew for a second. You've gotten kind of accustomed to this pillar of cloud and fire leading you. It's kind of a comforting presence, isn't it? In fact, whenever they crossed over on the Red Sea, do you remember where the pillar of cloud and fire went? It wasn't leading them anymore. The pillar of cloud went, went to the back, and it got between the people of Israel and Pharaoh and his armies, God's protection there. And, and now, now Moses, your leader, goes into this tent of meeting to meet with God, and literally the cloud comes right down, and it sits there at the entrance of this tent. And, and, and as an Israelite, you're like, wow, this is amazing. And it goes on to say that, that God would talk with Moses as he would with a friend. And so there's a personal nature now in this cloud. And as you go on further, though, in this chapter, you'll see that Moses develops such a relationship with God that he makes this what we would consider to be this audacious request 
of God. Look at verse 18. Okay, Moses has been in this tent of meeting where he has talked with God as with a friend. And then in verse 18, Moses, he's like, well, if he really is my friend, I'm just going to ask him. And you see what he says in verse 18? God, show me your glory. God, show me your glory. Okay, this, this pillar of cloud, this pillar of fire is pretty impressive. It's an amazing thing. But, but I want you to show me your glory. And if you remember, and in fact, you just read the next verses. Verse 19, God says, I'll make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name, my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and I'll show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you'll stand on the rock and while my glory passes by, I'll put you in the cleft or the crack of the rock and I'll cover you with my hand until I pass by. In other words, you can't handle my glory. You can't handle my glory, and I'm, I'm going to let you see just a little bit of it, but you can't really handle it. As we continue on, we see that in Exodus chapter 40, the tabernacle is now constructed, and the tabernacle is being set up. And in verses 34 and 35 of Exodus chapter 40, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And so now when the tabernacle gets established and built, God's glory literally fills that tabernacle to the point that you can't even go in there. It's just too glorious, if you will. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, you don't have to turn there. We'll go back to the book of Luke. But in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, after Solomon builds his temple, this glorious structure built for, for worshiping God and to bring the people of Israel together and to, and to give the Ark of the Covenant a permanent home. After he builds this, he prays this prayer of dedication. And when he's done praying the prayer of dedication, 2 Chronicles 7 tells us this, that God's glory comes down and it fills the whole temple. It fills the whole temple. And so thinking like an Israelite, up until this point in our history, things are good. God has been right there with us. Every place that we've had to worship, God has shown up and been with us. But if we continue on in Israel's history, we have to come to Ezekiel chapter 10 and 11. And in Ezekiel chapter 10 and 11, we have the account of God's glory leaving the temple. Some 600 plus years before Christ would come to the earth, God removes his presence from the temple, signifying to Israel, I, I, I'm basically done with you. I, I'm done with you. I, I, I'm, done, I'm done revealing myself to you. I'm done here being with you. And he pulls back. And, the, and it says there in Exodus or Ezekiel chapter 11 that the glory of the Lord departed from the temple. Which makes then... Luke chapter 2, all the more interesting to us. One of the things that's so intriguing about the Christmas story is, is the, the account of, of here you have the shepherds out on the hillside and, and they're keeping watch over their flock by night, right? But what happens whenever they're there? And lo, the what of the Lord shone round about them. The glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord has returned to Israel. It's come. Now when Christ is born, all of a sudden, God's glory shows up again, and shepherds are the first ones to see it, which then takes us now to Luke chapter 9. Last week, if you were with us, we saw that in verses 18 through 20, Peter makes this grand confession of who Christ is. 
he makes this grand confession of who Christ is. He's, he basically says, you are the Christ of God. You're the sent one. You're the Messiah. What we don't have in this account is what also happens then whenever he makes this account or when he makes this statement about who Jesus is. Because what happens is, is that he goes on and Jesus says, I'm going to have to die, which we see there in Luke chapter 9. And when Jesus says he has to die, do you remember what Peter does? We find it in Mark chapter 8. When Jesus said he has to die, Peter's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You don't have to die. You don't have to die. You're Jesus. You're the Christ. You don't have to die. And that's when Jesus says those horrible words to Peter where he says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. And he rebukes him. Now, I don't know about you, but, but last week when we left our text in verses 23 through 27 and talking about discipleship and following Christ, when, when I was studying, when I was preparing, even when I left here Sunday, I'm like, that really wasn't the most upbeat way to leave a congregation of people. Because let's be honest, following Jesus is hard. Is it not? Church, do you agree with me? Following Jesus is hard. Would you agree with me that it's going to get harder, too, before it gets easier? Following Jesus is going to be hard. And, and, and none of us just willingly says, yes, sign me up for the worst job. Sign me up for the hardest road to go. And yet, in following Jesus, it's hard news. Jesus uses language like, you've got to carry a cross. Remember that, what he says there in verse 23? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And I got to think now, in this week that transpires between verses 27 and 28, that the disciples are, are really counting the cost here. As they should. Every single one of us should count the cost when it comes to following Jesus. There is a cost in following him. There is a bigger cost in not following him. And we all have to count that cost. And so as they're counting the cost in this, now a week transpires and we come to verse 28. And I'm going to read this morning verses 28 through 36. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter, James, and John. Okay? This, if you will, this inner circle of the disciples. Okay? But, but Luke is very careful to record that there's three of them. Okay? Think like a Jew with me again. In a Jewish court, how many witnesses did you have to have for something to be true? Two or three. Two's good, three's better, right? Jesus now takes with him three witnesses because what's about to transpire? If Peter had just come back after being with Jesus and said this, everybody would have been like, you are a whack job. If James had come back and just said this, hey, you won't believe what I just saw, James you know, you're a son of thunder, you're making stuff up. But he takes three with him. He takes Peter, James, and John. So verse 28, after eight days, after these sayings, he took with him Peter, James, and John, and he went up into the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which was about... He was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as these men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. 
not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Father, in the brief moments that we have this morning, it's, it's my prayer that like Moses of old, that you would show us your glory. Not that you would just show it to us, but that we would comprehend what it means and, and, what, it, and what it means today for us. It's, it's my desire, Father, that, that like the psalmist prayed, that you would open our eyes so that we might see wonderful things from your law this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So the call to discipleship is a hard call. The call to follow Jesus is to choose a narrow way. And quite honestly, the call to follow Jesus can be very discouraging if we're not keeping our eyes fixed in the right place. It can get really hard, and one of the things that happens is, is we tend to think we're the only ones who are being obedient to Christ. Have you ever been ever tempted to think that way? I'm the only one who's standing for you. Well, what's interesting is, is that one of the men who will be one of the heavenly witnesses is a man who thought that he was the only one standing for the Lord. It was Elijah who, remember, after being up on Mount Carmel, came and, and cried before God and basically had this pity party and said, I am the only one in Israel left. And remember what God has to do. He has to remind him that there are prophets all over Israel that he has kept and that maybe Elijah ought to keep his eyes on what he's called to do. But as we begin this morning, I want us to see Jesus for who he really is. I want us to forget all the images of Jesus that we've ever seen, the pictures that are hanging on our grandparents' wall or maybe that we have on our house or that are maybe in your Bible or that maybe you saw in Sunday school, all these wonderful pictures of Jesus that picture him there so gentle and, and so loving and, and just so normal. And I want you to see what the disciples saw that day. In Hebrews chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews tells us this about who Jesus is. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. God is speaking to us through Jesus. Let's understand this morning that when, when we are hearing Jesus, we're hearing God speak to us. And he says, whom he appointed, the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Now listen to this description of who Jesus is. He is the radiance of the glory of God. When you and I look at Jesus, we see God's glory. We see it just as much as these three guys saw Jesus glorified. And I don't want us ever to look at the transfiguration in the same way again. We look at the transfiguration and we're like, oh, it would have been so cool to be there. And let's understand that when you and I look at Jesus, we're seeing the same glory today. We're just not even recognizing what we're seeing here. He goes on to say, he's the exact imprint of the nature of God. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so now Jesus takes Peter, James, and John on this mountain. He's praying. And what are they doing, according to verse 32? What are they doing? They're sleeping. And at first blush, when we look at that, we're tempted to think, those lazy disciples. 
those wretched disciples, those terrible men. But if you were to understand the Greek language and understand the words that are here, this was not a voluntary sleep that they were partaking in. They were made sleepy. This is God doing things in the only way that God can do. And, and, and literally, they are overcome with sleep. And what do they wake up to? What do they wake up to? Have you ever had a dream where it was just so awesome and when you woke up, you're like, oh, it's 2021. <laughs> this is the exact opposite kind of dream here. They, they, they're sleeping and maybe they're dreaming, I don't know. But when they wake up, they see something that's too good to be true. They see something that's too good to be true. What is it that they see? Well, let's go back up in the text to verse 29. As Jesus is praying, his, his face is altered. It's changed. Matthew says this. He uses the word transfigured. The, the Greek word is metamorpho, where we get our word metamorphosis. Okay, how a caterpillar becomes a butterfly, metamorphosis. It's a total change here. Jesus' face totally changes here. Okay, it's totally different. Matthew in Matthew 17 verse 2 says his face shone like the sun. Okay, and, and so Jesus radically appears different here. And his clothing became dazzling white. Literally what's implied there is the glory of Christ is so radiating through his clothing that everything just appears to be this bright, white, hot light. So you're looking at him and it's almost like I can't really look. I can't really get my eyes on him. Let's understand something. What is happening here in this moment? Is this just God playing tricks with Jesus and he's like, you know, like playing you know, like some kind of cartoon figure and making him change? No. This is literally, if you will, the peeling back of the veil of the flesh. And this is who Jesus is. Let's understand that while Jesus is walking around on this earth and when he's healing people and when he goes to a cross and when he dies, if his flesh had been peeled back, this is what you have seen on the cross. You would have seen the full glory of God on display. And God is just, if you will, veiling it. He's covering it with flesh. It's almost like we can't handle that much glory. And here, here now we have it peeled back for us. And as Luke describes this to us, not only is, is Jesus this way, but he's having a conversation. Look at verse 30. He's having a conversation. He's, he's not just there showing off his glory. He's having a conversation with two people. Not just any two people, but probably the two most important men in all of Israel's history, as they consider their history, Moses and Elijah. And we have to ask ourselves, why these two? Why these two? And there's great significance in these two. I can give you several reasons why these two. One of the obvious ones to me is both Moses and Elijah had already met with God on a mountain before. Both Moses and Elijah had already met with God on a mountain. Moses met with God on Mount what? Anybody remember? Mount Sinai, where he received the law of God. Remember that? He was up there and he met with them. Elijah also met with God. He also had, but he had some witnesses there with him when he met with God. He met with God on a mount called Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb is another name for what mountain? Sinai. God also met with Elijah on a mountain. 
Remember whenever the, the, the prophets of Baal up there trying to, to, to get to call down fire from Baal and God, after he has Elijah water down that sacrifice and water down that sacrifice, Elijah prays a prayer and all of a sudden fire rains down from heaven, consumes his sacrifice and the prophets of Baal's sacrifice. And then he looks out and he sees this little hand like a cloud because it hasn't been raining for three years. And then we have this record of, of Elijah running down off of Carmel and just he continues to run and run and run. He met with Elijah as well on a mountain. Both had famous departures from this earth, did they not? Moses died and his body was never found and God buried him in a place where no one knows. Elijah left in a, in a burst of flame, did he not? I always think of the Rich Mullins song, when I go out, I want to go out like Elijah. You know, both had come to moments of great discouragement where God had to come to them. Moses is getting so burdened down with leading, leading the people of Israel that, that he's ready to just quit and give up. And God comes and meets with him and encourages him. Elijah, the same way, is ready to quit. God comes and, and he meets with him. But in the most significant way, Moses and Elijah represent what Christ had come to fulfill. Christ came to fulfill the law, which came from Moses, and he came to fulfill what the prophets had said. And in many ways, Elijah was the pinnacle of the prophets. And so now, here is Christ meeting with, on one side, Moses, and on the other side, Elijah. And, and they're having this discussion, and we know exactly what they're talking about. Look at verse 31. What are they talking about? They're talking about Christ's departure. The literal word there is his exodus. They're talking about how Christ is going to leave. Not just any leaving, but and about what he's about, look in verse 31, what he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. What are they talking about? This is an amazing conversation. Here are two Old Testament saints who have come to Christ by faith, just as you and I do. They came, they came to salvation by faith. They have been looking forward to this you know, in their lifetime, and now they are here on earth. They're standing with the one who is about to go to Jerusalem and accomplish the very thing that they need. It's an amazing thought when you think about it. All of this, the law that Moses had written and had tried to get the people to live by, and Elijah the prophet keep pointing towards this coming Messiah, now it's all coming true. And here they are, and they're meeting with him. They're talking specifically about the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. They're talking about what that death means and what it means for their sins and for our sins. And as they're talking about this now, the disciples wake up. Verse 32, you know, this involuntary sleep that they're in now is lifting, and can you imagine waking up to a glorified Jesus <laughs> and then being introduced? They had no way of knowing that was Moses and Elijah. How do they know? They had to be introduced. Can you imagine that introduction? Peter, I want you to meet somebody. This is Moses. And over here, hey, James. Meet Elijah. If I'm there, I'm like... I was thinking about it this week. And if I were to wake up and find my heroes of the faith, if I were to wake up and Jesus was there, 
with David and with Paul, I guarantee you I would say something stupid. Anybody else with me? Anybody else with me? I guarantee you I would say, I would be so blown away, I would say something stupid. And guess what? Somebody says something stupid. Peter says something stupid. Doesn't he? Look at verse 33. Elijah and Moses are ready to go. And I'm right there with Peter. Wait, wait, no, don't go. We're just getting started here. Tell me what it was like to be up there getting the law. Tell me, you know, I've got so many questions here. It would be a really good thing if we would just stay right here. Do you find any fault in what he says there? I don't. Notice what he says. Master, it is good that we are here. Understatement of the year. It's good that we're here. And here's my suggestion. Let's make three tents or three booths. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Then Luke gives some commentary there, not knowing what he had said. Like, that's a nice way of saying dude is out of his mind. That's what he's saying here. And he said, why is he out of his mind? Because if I'm thinking about this, I'm up on a mountain with Jesus and Moses and Elijah. I never want to go off the mountain, right? I already know that my food's going to be taken care of because Jesus can make food out of anything, right? I, I know that I'm well cared for here. I've got Moses and Elijah. I've got plenty of, I've got all the conversation I need. I need nothing else. Actually, what Peter's saying here is very intuitive. Because in the Jewish calendar, it's the time for the Feast of Tabernacles. When he says this, it's the time for the Feast of Tabernacles. You say, what's the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, it's the time when they celebrated Israel's exodus from Egypt. And, and the families of, of Israel during this time would literally make temporary structures up on the roof of their house. And they would go sleep in those temporary structures for a week. It's like having a camp out at your own house. And they would do this for a week to celebrate the fact that God had brought them out of Egypt. In fact, in Zechariah, in his prophecy, in Zechariah 14, verses 16 through 19, Zechariah says this, that in the coming kingdom, there will come a time when they will celebrate the Feast of Booths. Maybe Peter's really kind of smart here. And Peter realizes, maybe, maybe this is really a sign that the kingdom really is here right now. And, and we don't have to go through all this hard stuff that Jesus said we were going to have to go through. Let's just build some booze and let's celebrate, baby. But you see, there's no kingdom without a cross, is there? there there's still work to be done. And the time for staying in booths is later. It's not time now. And Jesus, I find it interesting, who a week earlier had rebuked Peter, doesn't even acknowledge Peter's comments here. Doesn't even acknowledge them. In fact, it's almost as if God intervenes in verse 34. Because as Peter's saying this stuff, a cloud comes and overshadows them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Do you understand now why they're afraid as they entered the cloud? Here's three Jewish men who have heard all their life about what the cloud meant. When the cloud came on the tabernacle, could you go in the tabernacle? When the cloud came on the temple, could you go in the temple? And now all of a sudden, here's a cloud. 
and it is right on them. And I, the reason they're afraid is they're afraid for their very life here. They understand what's about to happen here. But before they can even deal with those fears, this booming voice comes out of the cloud in verse 35. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Let's understand what's happening here. This is the very Shekinah glory of God that we saw in the Old Testament. Now here on top of the mountain. And Peter, James, and John are the three men who get to witness this whole thing. They literally get to see the glory of God as it's revealed to them. And as this cloud falls on them, Matthew, in his account of this, says it's a bright cloud. It's a bright cloud. And on top of that, God speaks. Peter would later write about this. Peter would later write about this, and we have the benefit of seeing what, he, what he's written. Keep your finger here and go with me to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter, Peter deals with this. And he brings it up as he's, he's writing to, to his Jewish brothers to encourage them. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, he's, he's talking about God's word. And he's going to bring to bear what he has witnessed on the Mount of Transfiguration. Let's, let's look, at, look at verse 16 and read, read those verses to follow there. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, he says this, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What, is, what event is he referring to there? The Transfiguration. He's like, this is not made up. There's three witnesses. There's Peter, there's James, there's John. We're not making it up. This is not a fable. Verse 17, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Here's what Peter's saying. I was there, I know what I heard, and you can't, you can't tell me it's not true. Okay, say, what does that mean to us? Well, verse 19, here's what Peter says. And and before we read verse 19, just look up here. Honestly, how many of you think it would have been cool to hear the voice of God on the top of the mountain? I mean, would that like be the highlight of your life? Would, Would that be like the pinnacle? I was there. I heard the voice of God, and it wasn't James Earl Jones. I actually heard the voice of God. Here's what Peter says. And we have the prophetic word more firmly or fully confirmed. You know what Peter's saying? It was cool to hear the voice of God. We've got something even better. Don't sell yourself short or go through life saying, man, I wish I was during that time period. Do you understand you have the greatest gift of all? You have God's word available to you that's more sure than actually hearing the voice of God coming out of the heavens. And he goes on to say, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. 
He goes on, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And what he's saying is you can absolutely trust your Bible because it is God breathed out to you. It is God speaking it to you. And he says, it's more sure than, than my firsthand account of hearing God speak on the Mount of Transfiguration. Which then takes us back. Peter says you would do well to listen to this. Notice what God himself says there that day in verse 35 of Luke chapter 9. This is God speaking out of the cloud to Peter, James, and John. They're they're the intended audience here. And us as it's shared with us today. This is my son, my chosen one. God is, you know what God's doing here? God is doing something amazing that he didn't have to do, but I think it is just really awesome that he does it. Remember what Peter said back in verse 20 a week before? You are the Christ of God. You're the chosen one. You're the anointed one. Here is God affirming what Peter has said. This is my son. Yes, he is the chosen one. If you're Peter, you might be tempted at that point, except for the fact that you're in the presence of God to go, yes, got it right, got it right. But notice what he says. Listen to him. Listen to him. Who else was there? You got Moses and you got Elijah. He's not saying that that their prophecies are bad or that Moses' law is bad, but what he's saying is... (laughs) here's my son. Here's the chosen one. Moses is good. Elijah is good. Listen to my son. And this is what he's saying to you and I today. Listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Don't listen to anyone else. And in fact, when when, when this all transpires, look at verse 36. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found what? Alone. Jesus was found alone. I I can imagine James and John and Peter, like, where'd Moses go? It's just Jesus. And then these words of God resonating in, in their ears. Listen to him. Listen to him. Friend, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, listen to him. When Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are labor and who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, listen to him. When he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Listen to him. We would all do well to listen to Jesus. And what's interesting is, I know myself, and I can, I think, identify with Peter. If I had seen what I had just seen, when I came off the mountain, you know what I'd have been doing? I would have been running my mouth. I would have told everybody about this. But notice what happens here. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Why? Because we find out in Matthew chapter 17 that Jesus explicitly tells them in Matthew 17 and verse 9, don't tell anyone about this until I rise again from the dead. You see, seeing the glory of God and seeing Christ transfigured is is really important. And it's going to be important to their future ministry. But but the most important thing is that Christ dies and then he rises again. If you go back 
into the text from last week. In verse 26, Luke tells us something really cool. He says there, that whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes, what? In his glory and in the glory of the Father. Jesus' own words. He says this to his followers. And now, a week later, what is he showing them? His glory. His glory. Jesus, in his own words, if you, if you flip forward in Luke, and, and one day we'll get there to Luke chapter 21 and verse 27, says this, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Do you think Peter, James, and John resonated with that statement when he said that? Coming in a cloud and with great glory. And I want to say to us all this morning, if, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're on that path of discipleship, let's be honest, it can be discouraging. But be encouraged. The all-glorious Christ has promised to never leave you nor forsake you, and he is returning again for you on a cloud of glory. That is his promise. And we would do well to obey the voice of the Father when he says, listen to Jesus, because the more we listen to him, the more we learn of him, the more we become like him. This doesn't happen very often in my study. Usually by the end of the week, I leave my office and I have a pretty good idea of where I want to end a message until this morning. <laughs> I want you to turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians because I want to end in 2 Corinthians this morning. I don't know why this didn't dawn on me until this morning. But during these days of discipleship that we're all called to, and that's what we're called to, we're called to being disciples, and we're called to make disciples, all of us are learning and we're following, and let's be honest, we need to be recharged, don't we? If you're a follower of Jesus, do you admit to me this morning that you need to be recharged? It happens, doesn't it? We need to be recharged. And, 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 and we would be wise to take the words of God when he says, listen to Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul, Paul here is writing about what happened, what we saw in the book of Exodus earlier. How Moses, when he had seen the glory of God, when he came down off the mountain, because his face had been right there exposed to the glory of God. Remember what they had to do to Moses? They literally had to put a veil over his face. Like, we can't handle that much brightness, dude, okay? And they literally had to put a veil over his face. And, and, and what he's saying is that if I had time, we'd really expound the whole, the whole chapter here. What he's saying is, if you, in fact, if you look, verse 13, not like Moses who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the law, that is, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Okay? What he's saying is the law condemns. The law condemns. The law brings judgment. The law tells us all that we're not good enough, does it not? Not one of us can keep the Ten Commandments. And that's the law telling us that we can't do this. So, so it's like a veil. It's like a big downer in a way. But what lifts the downer, if you will, it's what Christ has accomplished, is it not? Christ fulfilled the law. He, he fulfilled all the law and the prophets. And then he died in our place. 
And then in verse 16, he says this, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Praise God. The veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And now he's talking to those who have turned to the Lord, who have, who have looked, if you will, to Christ for their salvation, for their justification. The only way that you and I are made right with God is if we look to Christ. Is that not right? Now he says this in verse 18, to those of us who are justified, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. We say, I wasn't there on the Mount of Transfiguration. I, I didn't see that. Guess what? You and I can still see the glory of the Lord. Where do we see God's glory? Where do we see the glory of Christ? It's in his word, is it not? And this is what he's saying. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Look around the room this morning. None of you have to be veiled because you're so glorious. Not one of you. But there's going to come a day when we're all going to be as glorious as Christ. And it's a process. And what he is describing here is, for those who are justified, we look to Christ to be justified. For us to be sanctified, daily changed, what are we supposed to do? We're to look at Christ. And it doesn't feel very glorious, and it certainly isn't very glamorous what he's doing in our lives right now. Am I right or am I right? It doesn't feel like it's very glorious right now. But, but what the promise of the word is, as we are looking at Jesus in his word, he is changing us from one degree of glory to another. And there's coming a point when we are finally resurrected with him, we will be like him. And what is the message of the transfiguration? <laughs> the message is there's a big difference between Jesus, who Jesus is and who his followers are, is there not? There's a big difference. <laughs> but he doesn't intend to leave it that way. He doesn't intend to leave it that way. God speaks out of the cloud and he says, listen to him. And, and that same message is for us today. Listen to Jesus Every day, be face-to-face -face with Jesus in his word. And whether or not you realize it's happening, you are being changed to be like him every day. You are being changed to be like him. Not so that people will look at you and say, wow, you are glorious. No. It's because he wants to make us like him so that we can represent him here on this world, in this world that we live in. Would you agree with me this world needs a little more Jesus? Would you agree with me it needs a lot more Jesus? The only way it's going to see Jesus is as those who are his followers are, are seeing him each day. Are seeing him each day. You want to make a change in your school? You want to make a change in your workplace? You, 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 want, to see, you want to see people have their lives rescued by Jesus? You daily interact with Jesus and the change will be apparent to those around you. It will be apparent to those around you. Father, what a tremendous account here. And I'm reminded that these words are, are true. They're just as sure as we're standing here today and sitting here and hearing them. That you really were changed in front of your disciples and you spoke with Moses and Elijah. What an amazing thing. 
But Lord, it's just as glorious that we have every day we have your word that is more sure, Peter tells us, than the voice of God coming out of heaven, the heavens that day. We have your word, and that your word is capable and powerful enough to change us to be like Christ. May we be students of the word. May, may, we, may we not be ever satisfied with our intake of the word of God. May we desire it more and more and more so that you would make us to be more and more and more like Jesus, we pray. In his name, amen. You are dismissed.